So John chapter 4 verse 3, start there and we'll move on forward. We're told that he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Remember we talked about that. Samaria is between Judea and the Galilee. Although most Jews would take the eastern route through, I believe it's Perea and around and then back on up into the Galilee, not going through Samaria. Because as we talked about last week, that's just, you could get unclean. By talking to or brushing up against one of those dirty Samaritans, bad idea, better to go around. Jesus had to go through Samaria. And he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour by Jewish reckoning noon. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Lord, would you tonight take us back? to the well. Take us back there just outside of Sikar. Take us back to the moment when you met this woman. And continue, I pray, Holy Spirit, to reveal to us the significance of this appointment, this divine meeting that you had scheduled, Father, I believe, before the foundation of the world, that you had in mind that you would meet this woman at this well. And as we'll see why tonight, Father, it was so important, I just, I thank you. I thank you for motivating your servant John to write this down. I thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who not only saw to this writing, but also sees to our understanding of it. Brings right interpretation and then amazes us, Lord, with incredible applications. As unique and different as we all are, that's many applications you can make. And, and so I pray, Lord... I invite you, I ask you to look into our hearts, look into our lives, and speak and apply as you know we need to hear, each and every one of us. I ask for your blessing on the teaching of your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. She was a Samaritan woman coming to Jacob's well outside of Sychar at noon in the lonely heat of the day. He, a Jewish rabbi, who as we have talked about, had to pass through Samaria. He had that appointment to keep. And so while resting at the well, Jesus engages in this most unlikely long shot dark horse conversation. I mean, she is the last person on earth you would think Jesus would be looking for to meet with. How insignificant a person was she? I mean, you would think he would be setting up a meeting with the emperor of Rome. Perhaps, you know, or or some of the heads of state or at least Quirinius, governor of Syria or some of these guys, you know, who had who had titles, who had influence. You would think he would have already revealed who he was to Nicodemus. At least he could bear some influence there to the Jewish people. But no, to this unlikely woman who had absolutely no influence on anybody whatsoever in and of herself. And we're told that Jesus was weary But as he begins to talk to her, she's wary. Those are your first two points. He was weary, she was wary. And as we go on through the conversation, we see Jesus is winsome. And I can't think of a better word to describe the way Jesus interacts with people. He's just cool. You know, he just, there's a way he just brings out peace and comfort and encouragement and joy. He's winsome. Well, she tried to ward him off. That's number four. 
Number five, Jesus was water for a thirsty soul. Down in verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of Jacob's well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. He makes her thirsty. And she responds well to him (laughs) at the well. (laughs) And I would have run with that. We talked about this. I would have carried that further. Talk about eternal life. Talk about living water. Pour out more grace. But Jesus has to go and delve into the ruin of her relationships. Why don't you go call your husband, he says. And number six in our notes from last week, she withholds information. I, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you're right, you don't. You've had five. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. She withheld that information. Once he says this to her, she's taken aback. She says, sir, (laughs) I can perceive you are a prophet. And then she goes on to turn to the old religious debate. And it's the oldest dodge in the book. Someone starts to get into your heart, talk religion, talk politics, push them away. And so she does. You know, our fathers taught us that we were to worship right here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And your people, they say you got to go worship over in Jerusalem, that mountain, Mount Zion. And I love this because she tries to steer it away from the authentic, and Jesus steers her right back to the authentic. He welcomes, number seven, he welcomes the conversation on worship. Okay, you want to talk about worship? That is just as intimate as where we were just a second ago. We can talk about worship. And so he describes a worship so beautifully that that favors a closeness with his Father. And I remind you, no one ever called God Father until Jesus came along. The Old Testament, he's like a father. He's compared to a father. But he is not called Father. You don't even hear David probably the closest person to the Lord in those days, cry out, Abba, Father. It's always Lord. Adonai. And so, Jesus says, those who worship the Father must worship in spirit. That is absolute genuineness. The reality of who we are, spirit. Because He's spirit, He wants to connect with your spirit. You must worship in spirit and in truth, in all authenticity. Verse 24, skip down there. God is spirit, Jesus says. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So it's cool. You don't want to talk about your five husbands and your living. That's cool. But let's be real. Let's deal with the issues at hand. And then He springs it on her. The source of living water. And I believe Jesus had been leading up to this all along. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And for the first time, Jesus willingly discloses, reveals his true nature to her. That's number eight. He willingly tells her who he is. He didn't tell Nicodemus, didn't tell Nathaniel, although Nathaniel had a good guess. He doesn't reveal that to anybody. He doesn't entrust himself to anybody, but he entrusts himself to this, as I said before, dark horse. This long shot. 
This woman of no reputation. Verse 27 is where we pick it up. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Now, much has been made of the forgotten water pot. I'm convinced you've heard sermons about the forgotten water pot. And about the representation. And no doubt, John mentions this little tidbit as a picture of leaving behind something heavy. Leaving behind the past. I think it makes for some great applications of the story. Either she's leaving behind the sin that she had shouldered for so long, or perhaps perhaps the weight of the water of the well of Jacob, the weight of the old law, that heavy thing left behind at Jacob's well while she goes with a new word into the city, As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. That's one of the things I love about our faith. It's always new. His mercies are new every morning. I can blow it big time yesterday and this morning wake up and God's waiting to start again. To start afresh. Every day is New Year's Day with Jesus. And that's good news. And that's part of the gospel message we have to share with a very weary world. But Christians, let me ask you, do you ever sneak back to the old well? Do you ever go back to the old vessels, the previous patterns, the previous ways? I haven't done that in a while. Perhaps it won't be as bad as I remembered. And that stagnant water is always bad. It's always bad tab. It's just going to leave you thirsty. Jesus, I remind you, He reminded me this week, hey, I give you a well of water springing up to eternal life. You don't need the old stuff. The things that used to make you happy, the things that used to bring you pleasure, that stuff, it just doesn't taste good anymore. Not when we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen? Amen. The Gihon Spring, it's interesting. It's a spring that, that fed the pool of Siloam all the way back in David's time, in the city of David. And Hezekiah built a tunnel to reach to that spring. Some of you have, have journeyed through Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem. And what's interesting to me is that Gihon Spring is still bubbling. I mean, that was 3,000 years ago. And you can look at the mouth of Hezekiah's tunnel, and there bubbling right up out of the rock is the Gihon Spring. Same spring. Fresh water. It's not the same water. It's not some stagnant stuff still sitting there in a pool where you can say, Look, uh, Jesus' apostles walked through that. No, it's fresh and it's new, but it's still bubbling. And the Lord would say the same thing, has said the same thing about His Spirit, about His offer of grace. It's a spring. It is always fresh. It is always new. It's not 3,000 years old. It's not 2,000 years old. It's not even a year and a half old. It's brand new, fresh, right now. And it will quench any thirst. Living water that He offers is eternal. So let me encourage you to keep moving forward because you never need to go back to get the water of life. 
It's always fresh, always new, always moving forward. And as Paul writes, 2 Timothy 4.8, hope you're getting used to this verse by now. In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have what? Loved His appearing. I just love His appearing. Boy, if we thought the water was sweet before He shows up. I cannot wait until that day. Now again, there are many applications we can make with this water pot and leaving the old behind and taking on the new and all of that stuff. But honestly, in the moment, I really don't think the Samaritan woman was thinking, I'll leave the water pot here as a future parable for the church. This will be good. They can use this someday. The truth is, she is so preoccupied with Jesus, she just doesn't think about it. I think that's probably, I can't guarantee, but I think that's the right assumption. When she looks into the eyes of Messiah, when she sees who Jesus is, she doesn't even think about that old vessel. She doesn't look to it. She doesn't consider it even worthy to pick up and haul back to town. It's not what's on her mind. Jesus is, and number nine now in our ongoing notes through John 4, suddenly the woman is a witness. The woman is a witness. Remember how we described her just a few minutes ago. Unlikely. You know, not the person you would have picked out of all Judea and Samaria to be a witness for Jesus, a a true evangelist. In fact, she's the first one. Do you realize that? The first evangelist. Listen again to what her witness is. Verse 29. She goes into the city and she says, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And the question begs a yes answer. You think? Could this be? Perhaps? The Christ, he knows everything about me. Now it's possible some of the men raced out of town to see Jesus because he knew everything about her. (laughs) Implication, some of them may be part of that story. I don't know. It's possible. But the real implication is that Jesus knew her in a way that nobody else could. I can say with absolute confidence, there is no one in your life who knows you like Jesus does. Not a husband, not a wife, not a friend, not a boyfriend, not a girlfriend. Nobody knows you like Jesus does. Not a father, not a mother. Only Jesus. And she now is in that same place that Nathaniel was in. Remember Nathaniel comes up to Jesus? Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile... Who's completely, you know, who has great integrity. He's like, how do you know me? He had just been studying about Jacob who did not have integrity. Who was an Israelite with guile. Jesus springs this on him and says, I saw you under the, under the, uh, the fig tree. Blows him away. Why? Because as we studied, Jesus is tapping into something only Nathaniel knew. Nobody else could have known this. Nobody else could have understood what Jesus was implying to Nathaniel, and I think perhaps that with a twinkle in his eye, I saw you under the fig tree. You know, when you were thinking about that stuff. Nathaniel just cries out, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. John 1.49, amazing story. Jesus saw right into him, understood him, knew him, knew his heart. 
And that's the witness. That's the testimony of the woman here. This guy knows me. Knows everything about me. And I wonder if in the back of her mind she's not thinking, and offered me eternal life. He knows my heart. How well does Jesus know you? We can make a big deal out of having a witness, a testimony, when we tell people about Jesus. You know what your witness is? It is your relationship with Him. How well does He know you? How well do you know Him? That's your witness. We have said over and over and over for more than a decade now, Jesus is your testimony. What you know of Him and how well He knows you. That's your witness. Not, not stacking up all the sins. Let me tell you, here's my witness. And it's going to get ugly, so strap in. No, it's, let me tell you about Jesus. Yeah, there's a lot of old water pots in my history. And I don't carry those anymore. And it doesn't even matter what they are. I've actually forgotten because all I can think about is Jesus. I am so preoccupied with Jesus. And so here she comes with this this same witness. He knows me. He knows me like nobody can know me. Is He the Christ? Paul says the convicting moment for the unbeliever is when the heart is disclosed. Where does he say that? 1 Corinthians 14. He's in this section talking about the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love, which is how we handle the gifts. And then in in chapter 14, he begins to talk more about the gifts, and especially about those that are significant, of great import. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, he says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? What's going on here? What are these people saying? That's not English. Paul goes on. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. 1 Corinthians 14.25, note this, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is it that opens up the heart? It's when the secrets of the heart are disclosed. When suddenly you realize, (laughs) he does know me. He really does know me. Well, Rick, when does that happen? It happens here all the time. At least that's what you tell me. And I've shared with you this before. That comment I get from time to time, more often than you would imagine. Rick, how did you know I was dealing with that this week? I didn't. I didn't have a clue. And, by the way, five minutes after I walk away from you, I will forget that you told me you were thinking about or dealing with that this week. Because I just got, it's gone. I don't know. How does the Word declared open up and deal with the secrets of our hearts? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. The Word discloses the heart, opens up and discloses the secrets of the heart in no way a pastor, a teacher, a preacher can. My witness, my testimony, gang, it is my heart disclosed to the Lord. 
He knows me. I've tasted living water. It is good and it is always new and it's always fresh. And I'm invited to drink freely from the one who knows me. By the way, that's why John later writes in Revelation 22, 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Your witness, your testimony is the gospel of everlasting life. And He knows you. The gospel and Jesus. It's what Jesus did, but even more importantly, I believe it's who Jesus is. Knowing Him and knowing how well He knows you. He knows me. So the bride comes along later. Because of our testimony, the bride comes along declaring the water of life in Jesus Christ. Now, here come the disciples with their bags of McFalafels and hummus fries. Right? Back from Sakar, And they're wondering, the Bible tells us, they're amazed... To find Jesus doing what He's doing. Why is Rabbi Yeshua talking with a woman? A woman! Not a Samaritan, mind you, but a woman. You know, it wasn't just culturally inappropriate, and my apologies, lady, but it was considered in the day a complete waste of time. Second century Rabbi Yossi ben Yohanan actually said, Prolong not conversation with a woman. His scribe added these poignant words, that is to say, even with one's own wife. How much more with a neighbor's wife? Hence the wise men say, He who prolongs conversation with a woman brings evil upon himself, ceases from the words of the law, and at last inherits Gehenna. (laughs) So perhaps you can understand that attitude was already well established in the rabbinical community in the days of Jesus. And his apostles see their rabbi, his disciples see Rabbi Jesus talking alone with a woman at this well, and it's just not right. He must be exhausted. He's not in his right mind. Maybe he doesn't even realize something's wrong with him. Get him some food, you know, I don't know. It's interesting because that attitude was absolutely rejected by Jesus. There was an uproar this last week during the Super Bowl. Probably a greater uproar uproar here in Washington after the Super Bowl or in the last few seconds. But the Like a Girl commercial, did you see it? The the commercial has the the woman or the man or someone else that says, hey, throw like a girl. And if it's a guy, he kind of does this, you know. And and even a grown woman, uh, run like a girl, and kind of like this. And then they ask little girls, remember? Throw like a girl. The little girl goes, you know, and run like a girl. You know, And, and they're making the point that it's just that as girls grow older, they lose that esteem and they start to think of themselves as lesser and unequal, etc., etc. Well, the feminists cheer that message of equality. The meninists are kicking back. And they're saying, what about the boys? Truth is, the little boys grow up and they have their self-esteem crushed. Why is it always the women? Well, for one thing, it was an always commercial. 
Personally, I don't need an always commercial telling me how to raise little boys. That said, that said, here's the point. Galatians 3.28, Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you want equality, there it is. It happens in Christ. See, the curse came on back with Adam and Eve. There's a horrible curse. Your desire will be for your husband, Eve, and he shall rule over you. Conflict! And the curse has been that way in marriages and relationships between men and women ever since until Jesus came and broke the curse. In Jesus, boys, girls, men, women, we're all one. Brothers, sisters, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus' boys have figured out by now that he's got a reason for doing everything he does, so they don't question him. I think it's funny. He says, no one asks, why, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? They just keep their mouths shut. Even Peter. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him into anything to eat, did he? Did you bring something? Hey, hey, who, who brought him food behind our back? Why are we going to town and do who? You know, they're... And Jesus, note this, who was too weary to go on a Wendy's run with the boys, <laughs> is suddenly standing up. He's refreshed. He's invigorated. They go away to let him rest and get him some food, but they they come back and number 10 in your notes, Jesus is well fed. He's well fed. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What did Jesus have to eat? I mean, what was He snacking on while they were away? Well, let me ask you this. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, what did He eat then? Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. After the devil tried to get Him to turn some stones into bread, He said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's the Word. It's the Word. It's the Word. It's the Word. But understand, Jesus was not out there in the wilderness gnawing on a leather Bible. He didn't pull out of his back pocket a New Testament in Psalms and chew it up while the disciples were in Sychar. He was feeding on the Word. Understand, God said, Isaiah 55, 11, My Word will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Jeremiah 15, 16, less... Your words were found and I ate them and your words for me became a joy and the delight of my heart for I'm called by your name. Your word. Now, we live in a society that has a serious food addiction in every way. I'm not just talking about addiction to food in terms of overeating. I'm talking about diets and health food fads. I mean, it is one craze to the next. I've been watching this. I've been watching it for 50 years, and you just put a new name on it. It's the same old stuff. Well, this is the one that's going to change your life. This is the one that's going to lift you up. This is the one that's going to that's help you. And I'm thinking, 
All I really need are bread and water. The staples. The bread of the Word and the water of life. Man, give me that. That's all any of us really need. May I simply suggest to you a steady diet of the Word? The Word that God said proceeds out of my mouth. The Word. Jeremiah 20, verse 9, the prophet said, If I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. The Word. It invigorates. It energizes. And it's got to get out. Acts chapter 4, verse 20, Peter and John, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. What have they seen and heard? The Word. They had seen the Word made flesh. They had heard the Word as it poured out of His mouth. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17. Paul says, If I preach the Gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. That's interesting. Paul says, I I don't have a choice. I have to speak the Gospel. He says, Woe is me if I do not preach the Gospel. He says, if I did this voluntarily, I I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Do you hear what Paul just said? I preach against my will. That's the translation. That's correctly understanding what he's saying. I preach the gospel against my will. Really, Paul? He was not a voluntary missionary. Nope. He was called, he was compelled, he was obligated by what Jesus had done to his life. Completely messed it up in the most glorious way possible. He had to. And I wonder sometimes, do we feel that way with the Word? Do we feel, do we know, man, I have no choice. I've got to speak about Jesus. This is not an issue of, of whether or not I volunteer to share the gospel with a friend or a co-worker. I have to. Amen. Getting called into the boss's office. Listen, you really need to cool this uh, whole gospel preaching thing. I, I'm sorry, I, I can't help it. I cannot stop speaking about what I've seen and heard. Well, see, that was the attitude of Paul and Peter and John and Jeremiah and the prophets. A lot of these guys didn't really want to speak the Word, but they didn't really have a choice. It just came gushing right out of them. Understand this about God's Word. If you get into a steady diet of the Word, it feeds you, it nourishes you, it strengthens you, and you just can't keep it down. In the Revelation, you may recall this, John saw an angel holding a little book. Revelation chapter 10. And in verse 9, he says, So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book, and he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was as sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. What little book is this? It's the Bible. It's the Word. Sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And bitter in the stomach. Why? Because it's not meant to stay in the stomach. They said to me, John writes, Revelation 10.11, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. If that word in you is giving you a tummy ache, John, get it out. Speak the word. 
If the belly is bitter, share the Word. Take it in, give it out. Note this, verse 34 again, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Jesus didn't just tout the Word, He lived out the Word. Two completely different things. James terms it this way, prove yourselves doers of the Word, those who will live it out, not merely hearers of the Word who delude themselves. You know what the delusion is? I went to Bible study, it's all good. I was in the Word tonight, what's the problem? So I don't tell anybody about it. I'm getting a steady diet. Got to get it out. Got to get the Word out. The Word lived out. That is the healthiest diet around. Because you're taking in the right amount of nourishment and you're putting out, you're getting rid of that which others need. And it works for great spiritual health. And by the way, nothing satisfied Jesus more than doing the will of Him who sent Him. My food, He says. My food is to do the Word. To work it out. To live it out. To walk it out. And in John 17, verse 3, he'll be praying on that Thursday night. And he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How did he do that? He hasn't gotten to the cross yet. He's talking about everything so far that he's done in his ministry. I've accomplished it. What had he accomplished? Gang, sharing the word... One person at a time. Nathaniel, Nicodemus, the nameless Samaritan woman. He's going to talk to a nobleman in the Galilee here in just a minute. Lame man at the pool. And John is so good to point out, one person after one person after one person, as we talked about Sunday, yes, he dealt with the masses. Yes, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, distressed and dispirited. He looked at all of the people. He fed the 5,000. But you know what? It was always the one. And Jesus would go one by one by one by one, sharing the word, sharing the word, sharing the word. That's how easy it is. That's how you change the world. Just one person at a time. And that's the key to a healthy diet of the Word. It's in and out I love in and out That is the best hand. Five guys is good. in and out absolutely rocks. I have to drive down to California to get it, but it's amazing. <laughs> but that's what the Word is for us. In and out. In and out. That's how you have a diet of the Word of God. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Jesus starts out here, he uses a term, there's probably a a familiar rhyming proverb in the day, when he says, do you not say, quote, yet there are four months and then comes the harvest. The, the, The phrase in the Greek, it sounds like this. Amy, A-T, tetraminos. Kai, erkomai, therismos. So there's kind of a rhyme scheme to it. Do you not say, yet there are four months and then the harvest. But note this, then he says, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for the harvest. Number 11 in your notes, the fields are white. 
I have wondered for years why he said that. The fields are white unto the harvest. The Greek word, leukos, is a bright white. Not an off color, not an off white, not a wheaty kind of white or, or, a, or a barley, not, not even barley white. <laughs> barley, barely. Not even white, a bright white. Look on the fields, they are white. Why not golden brown? Or tan? Look at the fields, they're tan for the harvest. Look at the fields, they're yellow. Even yellow would work. I mean, if you looked out on a wheat field, you know it's not white. Why does he call it white? Well, it's just kind of the Greek. No, he said white. What was happening? Two things to note about this. What was happening here when Jesus spoke these words? Verse 30, look at it again. They went out of the city and were coming to Him. Jesus, He's talking to the apostles. He says, you know you say four months in the harvest, but look, I'm telling you, the harvest is here and now. And here up the road come all of these Sicarites. Sicarians? I don't know. People coming from the city of Sicar, this group of Samaritans and my friends, Jesus sees them coming and the traditional Samaritan garb in Jesus' day was white robes and white turbans. February is prime time for snow geese in the Skagit Valley. And you know, you can drive down those roads and go looking, and a lot of people do. There are people who are kind of buffs on seeing the snow geese return, and entire fields will be white. Compare that. Think about that. Here comes all these people out of Sikar, white turbans, white robes, coming up the road to see Jesus, and he says, <laughs> the field is white for the harvest. It is harvest time. But there's another reason. Perhaps why Jesus says that the fields are white. You see, harvestable grain is always first that beautiful golden brown. But it turns white if it's left until late summer. Matthew Henry shared that with us. Jesus may be saying, the time is now. Here they come, boys. The fields are white. It's late summer. I mean, man, you can't get any riper than the fields are ripe right now. Now is the time. It's not just the front of the harvest, it's the tail end of the harvest. The fields are white. I think that applies in our day better than any other time in history. Man, if the fields were golden brown when Jesus was here, how white are they now at the end of the summer? And in verse 36... Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others labored and you have entered into their labor. I love this. He says we're already receiving wages and those wages are fruit for life eternal. You already have eternal life. Christian brothers and sisters, you already have eternal life. When you go out into the field and you reap for the harvest, guess what you're reaping? Good fruit for the rest of eternity. And what is that fruit? Every person that you bring into the kingdom, every person to whom you share the gospel, 
That's fruit for eternity. Why? Because every time you see them in heaven, you're going to go, that's so cool. It tastes good to see people worshiping Jesus who heard about Him from you. Go get the fruit. He says, you're all working together. One sows, another reaps. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So it's not like we, we you know, pat ourselves on the back and say, what a great job I've done bringing people to the Lord. No, it's fruit, it's joyful, it's wonderful, but He's the one who did it. I just opened my mouth. It was His Word that came out. It was His Spirit at work. I was just the tool, the instrument that He used. Paul says, He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so understand, we here are teamed up at summer's end with a great cloud of witnesses. Do you realize we're working the same field that Peter and James and John worked? We're in that field. The field of humanity seeking to bring in the harvest. Don't stop. Don't stop now. We're so close. And there are times I think that toward the end of all of this, churches are getting weary. Christians are getting a little tired. And boy, I hope those four blood moons amount to something because, you know, just I'm ready to be done. I've said that. And yet, do we want to leave a full field? Do we want to exit with the work unfinished? Or do we want God to say, well done, good and faithful servants? Man, bring in the harvest. Jesus said, Matthew 9.37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's a tragic statement. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. That has become an ongoing prayer of mine. Lord, send workers into the harvest. Lord, send workers into the harvest. Lord, send me into the harvest. Because there just aren't enough workers out there to receive all of the fruit that could be stored up and brought in to all eternity. You know, there are a lot of efforts out there among churches. A lot of really good things that churches are doing, churches are engaged in. But there's only one thing we're supposed to do. Above all other good things, our purpose is the gospel. Our mission statement is the Great Commission. To make disciples of all nations. That's why we're here. We're not here for social welfare, although that's a good thing and we do some of that. We're not here for self-improvement. Although, okay, that's, that's good. It, it's helpful to hear the word and, and have it kind of better my life. We are not here for political activism. We are not a service organization. We are not here for entertainment or for education. All good things. But we are here for the gospel. Amen. We are here to preach Jesus. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's our message. And that's so easily. And in the church today, I I just watch. It's back here. We'll do the gospel thing eventually, occasionally. 
But man, we got all this other stuff. We got to keep going here. Why? Because we've always done it that way. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That's why we're here. That is what your life and my life is supposed to be about. And tonight, by the way, is just, you know what we're doing right now? We're getting bread and water, staple food, so that we can go out and spread the gospel some more. By the way, as we harvest the whitening fields, it's a lot of fun. There's great joy here. Joy in the harvest. Isaiah 9 verse 3 says, You, speaking of Messiah, you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. Because harvest is always a joyful time. We celebrate it. We we think about that time of year with Thanksgiving and the bringing in of the harvest and being thankful to God for all of His provision and all of His good things. It's that kind of joy we're talking about. Jesus said in Luke 15, 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Because the harvest is where the joy is. And I think Christians would be a whole lot more joyful if there were more fruit being brought in and seeing the process finished and completed. Bringing in the grain. Verse 39 So, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Him because of the word of the woman who testified. There's your witness. Again, who in the world would have picked her for evangelism training? And yet, off she goes, a life change. She starts to talk and they start to believe. They start to buy in. She said, she testified, He told me all the things that I have done. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. Note this, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word, not hers, but now his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Number 12 in your notes, if you're tracking this, Jesus is welcomed. He is welcomed. They came out to Him because of her words. They invited Him to stay because of His And John doesn't tell us about any of those conversations. Oh, I wish I could be there. That's the part of this well story that I would love to hear. You know, to be a little fly on the well and listen in. As all the people from Sakaar are now standing around. And now Jesus is talking to them. Has he had a bite to eat yet? I don't know. He's so excited. And they're all listening. And by the time that conversation is done, they're not trying to ride him out of town on a rail. They're inviting him to come on in and stay. Please, come stay with us. Can you imagine the discomfort of the disciples realizing they had to stay in Samaria two more days? (laughs) Stay, I've told you before, is one of John's favorite words. He'll use it 66 times in this Gospel. Stay, just stay. Remain. Abide. The word in the Greek, meno. Abide. Jesus will say in John 15.4, Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. 
He says in John 15, 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It'll be done for you. Why is that, Jesus? Because if you abide in me and I in you, then everything you wish is everything I wish, and I'm going to accomplish whatever I wish to accomplish. Did you get that? (laughs) It's being so aligned with the will of God in thought, in process, in prayer, that what you hope for, what you long for, what you desire is what He desires, and He's going to get that done. Abide with me. And that's, that's what it's about. I sat down at prayer tonight, and this has been on my mind all week long. Just the abiding presence of Jesus. It's what we need more than anything else. Inviting Jesus to come and to stay. And even as unlikely a place as my heart. As unlikely as Samaritan Sakar. Did you know he stayed there? I, I didn't know that before. I mean, I've read this story, I don't know how many times. I've always skipped right over the fact that they didn't then just go from Samaria right on up into the Galilee. That day, he stayed. Two days. Two days, Spencer. He was there for two days. Spencer pointed something out last week. He walked up. I love how he does it. He goes, is this a possibility? And he shared something with me I will share with you right now. If a day is as a thousand years to the Lord, then He's been abiding with us Samaritans for two days. He's been staying with us for two days. He stays two days, and then then He gets back to the salvation of Israel. He's been abiding with us for two days. On the third day, He gets back to Israel. And Hosea the prophet said exactly that. Hosea 6 verse 2. He will revive us, Israel, after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. Jesus spends two days with the Samaritans and then gets back to the ministry of Israel. And that's exactly what I expect to happen in our day. Verse 43. After two days, He went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus Himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Wait, where is his own country? (laughs) Galilee. Watch this. So when He came to Galilee, the Galileans received Him, having seen all the things that He did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. If the Gospel ended there, we would make a wrong assumption, and that is we would assume that the Galileans received Him exactly like the Sicarites did. And they did not. But Rick, it says right there, the Galileans received him. Check this out. Think about what John has just implied here. He says again in verse 44, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Why did John say that right there? Because in Samaria, a mini revival broke out. According to the word, the entire town got saved. I mean, it's amazing. The the, the town of Sychar, which is on the south end of Samaria, believed in Jesus. Everybody saved. Now you've got this entire town of Christians. Jesus' people. Believing Him to be the Messiah. But now He's coming back into His own country. And yeah, they did receive Him at first. Why? 
because they had seen the miracles in Jerusalem. John 2.23, going back there, tells us when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast that happened just before this event, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. What does that tell us? The miracles were the thing. The signs were the attraction. When He came into Galilee, He came, as far as the Galileans were concerned, the Jewish people up in the north, He came as the one who was the miracle worker. Oh, he's here comes Jesus. Maybe He's going to do something else. Maybe He's going to perform another way. Jesus was seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. And in Sikar, there is not a single record of a single miracle. Now, maybe John just didn't mention one. But I find it fascinating that among the Samaritans in Sikar, there were no miracles listed. Number 13 in your notes, the people of Sikar take Jesus at His word. They invited Jesus to remain with them because of His Word, because of what He said, not because of what He did. He didn't impress them. He didn't, you know, part the waters of the well. He didn't do some amazing little miracle. He didn't heal somebody there in Sakar. No mention of any kind of miracle whatsoever. He just spoke to them and they were so enlightened, so excited, so turned on by what He had to share. They said, you've got to stay. And that's how people get saved. They hear the Word. They hear the Word. You have to take Jesus at His Word to be born again. If you don't take Him at His Word, you're not born again. Romans 10.17 tells us, Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Luke 16.31, Jesus said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Talk about prophecy. He did rise from the dead and they were not persuaded. Because even rising from the dead was a sign. It was a miracle. Preaching the gospel in northwest Washington is tough. Let's just call it what it is. It's not easy here. Uh, We live in an area that's very earthy in terms of spirituality. It's very spiritual, Northwest Washington. People like the kind of the Native American spiritism. They, they like the idea of spiritual things. Lots of nature worship, lots of animal worship in the Northwest. Lots of that kind of thinking. And even in the church in the Northwest, I have just personally have noticed a tendency to the experiential and a lot of fringe spirituality. Not a lot of teaching of the Word. And we are wrong if we think that it's the experiences and the miracles and all of those exciting things that will attract people to Jesus. It's not. It never was. The people of Sychar are saved because they heard Him and they took Him at His word. So what do we do in Washington where we know this is the landscape? How do we respond? (laughs) With the word. We just keep bringing the word. 
Keep bringing the Word. You know the Word. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You just keep sharing it. Over and over and over. And you will find some Sikharites. You will find some Samaritans. You will find some unlikely Samaritan women who you probably shouldn't even be talking to and they're going to hear the Word. And they're going to accept and receive it is true. This church is not here to hide in the woods. We're here to get the word out in love, in spirit, and in truth until Jesus comes. Well, one last story that bears out this same thought tonight. Verse 46. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. I love how John says that. It's just so matter of fact. You know, remember Cana, that's where the water became wine. John, that's a miracle. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> and there was a royal official, a nobleman, whose son was sick at Capernaum. Capernaum. I just like to say Capernaum. But that's, you know, Hebrew pronunciation. How far is Cana from Capernaum? Anybody remember? It's... I originally said four to five. I had to correct it. It's like 13 to 14 miles. From Cana over to Kafarnachum. It's, it's, it's a good little jaunt there. Keep that in mind. About 14 miles. Verse 47. His son is sick at Capernaum there at Cana. Right? Here comes this official. 14 miles. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Now, this is the this miracle is only told in John. Okay? It's not a similar miracle. To, it's similar, I guess, in some ways, but it's not the same miracle as other gospel stories. So this story is only here in John. His son is to the point of death. This seems to happen a lot. <laughs> you know, a child has either died or is right there at death's door. He implores Jesus. He comes to him. And verse 48, note what Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. You are miracle people. He's calling it what it is. Exactly what we just talked about. Not like the people of Sikar. The Galileans want to see some stuff. They want a performance here. Come on, show us your thing. Samaritans saw no signs or wonders. They just heard the word and that was enough. The Galileans, and this is so important because I fall into this trap often. The Galileans wanted Jesus for what He could do for them. And that can be a lonely place. Why is it that we see, you know, movie stars and pop stars' lives just fall apart? Because their lives are 100% performance. Everything they do, everywhere they go. Who was it I was talking to just the other day who said they saw Taylor Swift out jogging and her hair was perfect and her makeup was perfectly done and she had the lipstick on and everything. I feel so bad for her. She can't even go jogging without putting on the show. It's all show. And that's a horrible place to be. And that's all they wanted from Jesus. Give us the show. Understand this. 
Jesus wants you for who you are. Not for anything you can do for Him. There's not a single thing you can do for Him that is the reason He wants you. He just wants you. Period. See, that's that's agape. That's the love of God. I just, I just love you and want to be with you. Why, Lord? Because uh, I'm love? <laughs> I just do. But, but, but I can do these things for you make you love me more, right? No, I already love you more than you could ever imagine. Because I am love. But we get into the trap of wanting to either do things for Jesus or come to Jesus for what He can do for us. Why are you going to prayer tonight? Well, i got some issues I just need Jesus to work on. You know, some things I need Him to fix. It's okay. Bring your prayers, bring your petitions, bring your requests to the Lord, but understand this. Sometimes Jesus just wants you to come be with Him because you just want to be with Him. It's about Him and not what He can do for us. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Verse 49, the royal official said to Him, Sir... Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, I love this, Go. Your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. What was that? He started off. But he didn't continue. He started for home. But he didn't get there. Listen, John will clearly point this out. This this nobleman, he saw no miracle. He asked for one, but he did not see one. There was no flash of light. It wasn't like Jesus said, Go, your son will live. There was no electrical impulse that shot through his body. Whoa, I felt that. There was no mysterious whoosh of the wind. Something just took place. Jesus, as simply as I say this to you, Jesus said... Go, your son will live. And that's all this nobleman needed to hear. Okay, good, thank you. And off he goes. He took Jesus at his word. Besides John telling us, as he does, that the noble guy believed, how do we know he really believed? Because he didn't go home. Watch this, verse 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. Yesterday. So Jesus said, go, your son will live the day before the man now meets these servants. The father knew it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household believed. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Why this sign? Why does John... Remember, he only chooses seven signs in the entire Gospel of John. Not including the resurrection. Seven miracles of Jesus, seven signs. Each one of them significant in and of itself. The water to wine we've already talked about. Here's the second one. The nobleman's son. Go, your son will live. Understand this. One o'clock in the afternoon, the day after Jesus said to the man, Go, your son lives. How far is it from Cana to Kafar Nahum? 14 miles? 
Can you not do 14 miles in an afternoon in a day? It's been calculated at a, a steady pace, 14 miles would take four or five hours to walk. Knock off an hour or more if you don't obey the speed limit, and you run. But gang, I would have been back home in two hours if it was little David on his deathbed. I would have gotten out of there fast. Go, your son lives. Really? Really? Okay, good. I would have been like Wiley Coyote, you know? And the roadrunner, I would have been out of there to make sure, to see. I mean, wouldn't you? But this royal official starts for home, stops along the way, picks some grain, I don't know, stops in and has a meal, stays overnight somewhere because now it's the next day when these servants come and meet him on the road. He's taking his sweet time. I would be frantic. Wouldn't you? I mean, think about it. Be honest with yourselves. If it's your child dying, wouldn't you be frantic to be sure that little Johnny, little Betty Sue was all right? And that's it. That's it. You see, Hebrews 11.1 one says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The 14th point and the last one is a noble faith does not worry. A noble faith does not worry. This guy's got absolute assurance. Jesus said he's healed, he's healed. Obviously he believes Jesus or he would have hightailed it home to double check. And how often do we do that? A life entrusted to Jesus is not a life of freaking out. It's not a life of getting upset over stupid things. Make a list. How many stupid things happen in every single day of your life? And are you going to worry about every one? We would go mental. A life lived in Jesus is is not about fussing or fretting. And yet, how many of us will pray, and then we raise from person to person to person to person seeking comfort or reassurance? You just talk to Jesus. Well, yeah, I prayed about it, but I just need you to help me feel better about this because, oh, I'm just really worried about this thing. It's like... Didn't he say he would take care of it? Do you believe that he's got your best interest at heart? Do I really believe him when I come to him with whatever request I have? And if so, why do I keep seeking other people to get reassured? I call that pork chop praying. Pork chop praying. When I was a kid, my mom, and I hope she never listens to this, she made pork chops once a week. And they were the worst meat I have ever had. I since as an adult have had some good pork chops. Now Cheryl makes these really lean little breakfast chops. They're really tasty. But my mom would make these big, thick, tough, hard, old chops. And she'd cut them up into the little squares. You know, there'd be like 27 of them on my plate. And I had to eat like 26, you know. And that's where the napkin became my best friend. You all have done it, you know. Because you chew on that stuff and it just doesn't get smaller. You're chewing and you're chewing and you're chewing and you're chewing and it's the same size as when you first popped it in your mouth. And now it tastes like your own spit. It's just nasty. So you reach for the, the, you know, napkin. 
A man that napkin can hold a lot of chops. And the worst thing is in the morning you wake up and it's still in your teeth. Fretting is like chewing on tough pork chops. Pork chop praying. Oh, I'm praying about it. I'm bringing to the Father. As I'm gnawing on it and chewing on it and talking about it and fretting over it and worrying about it. Man. Faith makes the Word go down like bakery fresh bread and sweet water. And that's what Jesus invites us to. We've been talking a lot lately in this Gospel about entrusting our lives to Jesus. For the unbeliever, the non-believer, that means, man, just give Him your life. Start on the road. Take the risk. Step out. Walk with Jesus. For the believer, that means, don't fret. Don't worry. Don't fuss. This is Jesus we're talking about. Entrust your life to Him. Man, we've been to this verse so many times, I'll read it to you again. Philippians 4.6 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A noble faith does not worry. A noble faith just entrusts itself to Jesus. So the second sign reveals a faith that is not based on what Jesus can do. It's just based on who Jesus is. And I want to challenge you this week. I invite you to the same thing that He has been inviting me to. And that is to spend some time with Jesus just to be with Jesus. Not because you want something. Try it. It's tough. Try praying without asking for a single thing. Just talk to Him. Because you want to be with Him. We need to practice that now because He's he's preparing a place for us so that where He is, we may also be. Amen? Amen. Let's bow and pray. Lord Jesus, it is Your presence above all other things that we need. When we sit in Your presence and hear You teach, when we sit there beside the well and watch You with the people, when we see what excites You, Lord, what enthuses You, when we see Your tenderness and Your compassion and Your mercy and Your power and Your great grace, We're kind of like the woman at the well. We don't think about anything else. We just get preoccupied with You. I would imagine, Lord, even as we've been studying and reading and considering You tonight, that some of the frets and worries that we may have brought in here are kind of sitting like that old water pot back by the well. And so I pray, Lord, that we would not go back and pick it up. Help us to leave the worries, the fretting, and the fussing. Give us a noble faith, Lord, just to be in Your presence and entrust our lives to You. God, You are so good. Thank You, Lord, for living water, the water of Your Spirit. Thank You for the bread of Your Word tonight. 
May we continue to feed on it and share it through the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, Amen.